We at Harlem Baptist Church want to welcome you as you join in listening to the word preached with us. We hope that you are both challenged and encouraged as we hear from the word of God. We pray that through this recording, you would know the truth of the gospel and that you would find life in Christ. If you don't have a church home, you are always welcome to join us. If you do, we pray this would not be a substitute, but instead a supplement to the preaching of your home church. Information about Harlem Baptist, as well as other sermons and resources, can be found at our website, www.harlanbaptist.org. We're still working through Romans, of course. Hopefully, Lord willing, we will be for a while, and I pray that we're all strengthened by it, even as it confronts us, uh, and as this text this morning does, very, very boldly, uh, with the truth of our need, the truth of our sin. Uh, But this morning we are going to be looking at man's unrighteousness. Last week we looked at God's faithfulness and we heard some of Paul's, uh, his dealings with objections uh, that had been raised against this gospel that he was preaching. Uh, Objections that were being given from uh, the Jewish people, Jewish Uh, Well, I would say probably not yet believers, but those who have been raised in the Jewish faith uh, had known the scriptures, but had missed the point. And Paul began to explain that. We looked at that last week, and we're going to continue to do so uh, because Paul is going to prove, in essence, and I wouldn't even say necessarily prove, he's just going to give the evidence that the Old Testament attests to this same unrighteousness, this same uh, depravity that we see in mankind. And through the Old Testament and through the law, we see that all stand condemned. So again, we're, we're still working through the, the bad news. I'm going to talk about the good news in part at the end, but we've got to understand the bad before the good really seems good. All right, but Uh, Before we jump in, let's read the text. Uh, If you can, I invite you to stand with me. We're going to be looking at verses 9 through verse 20 uh, this morning. So I'm going to read through uh, these verses, and then uh, we will begin to unpack what Paul has to say. Starting in verse 9. What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all both that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside, together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave, they use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. And their paths are ruin and misery. And the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law. So that every mouth may be stopped. And the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law 
comes knowledge of sin. You may be seated. Let's pray. Father, we know from your word, Lord, that no human being will be justified, Lord, in your sight before you by our own works. Lord, we cannot save ourselves, and Lord, we all stand condemned. Lord, this is bad news, except for verse 21 that we will get to, Lord, that but now the righteousness of God has been manifested. Lord, I pray that as we meditate on these words from Paul, as we examine our hearts by, Lord, your revealed word and the sinfulness, Lord, that is being exposed by your word, Lord, may we, Lord, hear these things. May we see ourselves, Lord, accurately so that when we turn and look to Christ, we may see him as glorious, as righteous, as beautiful as he truly is. So, Father, I pray this morning, help us to see ourselves, Lord, by you using your word to illuminate our hearts and minds. Lord, it is only by your grace that we will do so. We ask for it knowing that you, Lord, will not fail. We pray all this in Christ's name. What then? Paul is obviously still anticipating and dealing with objections here and what I think Paul ultimately is getting at, what we talked about last week, is there is just this deep, deep desire that comes from sin and its effect on us for us to find a way to justify ourselves. To find a way to prove God wrong and prove ourselves right. Uh, an absolute stubbornness in us that we want to deny the truth about who we really are and what we've done. Now, Paul is dealing with these objections because he knows how crucial it is. He knows how important it is. We have to understand the depravity of our hearts. We have to understand the danger of our position. Or we won't see the gospel for what it is. It is a grace from God. Having nothing to do with our own works. Paul's going to get to that at the end. He says, no one can be justified by keeping the law. No one can be justified by the works of the law. And he's dealing with this objection, anticipating it, still specifically with the Jews in mind, but trying to help the Jews understand they are on equal bad footing with the Gentiles. Because the entire world stands condemned. And their objection is still, well, we have possession of the law. We know the law, but isn't that God's law a promise for us? That means that we're held under a different standard. And what's so mind-boggling about this is Paul's saying, 
even if you're held under a different standard, the standard of the law, you stand condemned just as much as they do. But there's still this desire, so what Paul is going to do in this passage is something so important. He's going to take them back through a series of six different passages in the Old Testament to show, look, you have failed to see what the law, what the word actually says about you. But Paul's not the only one who's had to do this. I invite you to look on the screen or turn to your Bible in John chapter 5. We read one verse from this passage in the catechism question. Because we asked, is Scripture accessible to all men? Is it good for all men? And it's an absolute yes. We're, not only is it for us, but we're commanded to read it because it's only through the Word that we can know who God is. But it's also so crucial that we know that the Word points to Christ Himself. And that Christ as, is our only hope. So in John chapter 5 and verse 37 through 40, Jesus is speaking to the Jewish people again. He's sharing the truth about himself. And they keep coming back with the keeping of the law. They keep coming back with, we've been, we are special. Why are you saying this about us? And this is what Jesus says to them. He says, and the father who sent me has himself borne witness about me. His voice you have never heard. His form you have never seen. And you do not have his word abiding in you. For you do not believe the one whom he has sent. He says, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. What Jesus is saying there is the same truth that Paul is trying to get across. You can possess the law, you can possess the word, but if you do not see that the word of God, the revelation of God, points to Christ as the fulfillment of all of his promises, that points to Christ as the center of all that is going on, the center of the story of redemption, the center, the one hope that we have, if you do not see that his word speaks to him, then one, you're not understanding it rightly, but two, you give evidence that the word does not abide in you. It means that the word is not in you. It's not the spirit has not worked in you yet. They bear witness about him. So what is Paul going to do? Paul is going to make the Old Testament show how the Old Testament makes the case against us. So a total of at least six different references. He pulls from multiple Psalms that quote had the same quote exactly in them. But I want to pull just from where he starts from the beginning of verse, or the second half of verse 10 into verse 12. He quotes from Psalm 14. This is the fool 
says in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt. They do abominable deeds. There is none who does good. And the Lord looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. They have all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. This is a, a difficult truth. None does good. Not even one. And I mean, we got to just deal with that very statement. How countercultural that is for us. There is so much through the media we consume, the stories that are told through movies, through whatever shows you're watching. The culture says, no, you are good. People are inherently good. If people would just be left alone, they would do good. And we have to just stop Turn off all the exterior voices that we're hearing and listen to what God's revelation says, what God's word says. It says, none does good. No one understands. No one seeks for God. And we have to understand that is the state of mankind apart from the grace of God to intervene. That is where we really are apart from the grace of God. It is not a pretty picture. And do we need evidence of that? I don't think so. We see it all around us. And it doesn't mean, oh, we go looking for all the bad in the world. But we've got to do something to try to understand if man were really good inherently, then where Has all this bad, where has all this corruption come from? Why does it seem and why is it so very evident that there is a corruption inside each one of us? None is righteous. No, not one. Paul purposely changes the one word in this quote from his quote from the Septuagint, which is a Greek translation of the Old Testament, the Hebrew Old Testament. And he interjects, inserts this word righteous, dikaios, the word righteous, because that word righteous is ties in what's the theme of Romans he says for in it the gospel the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith as it is written the righteous shall live by faith but so we know that's the theme of Paul's letter so when Paul comes to this important essential moment he says look none is righteous. No one 
is righteous. So the only righteousness that we can have hope for is a righteousness that is exterior, that comes from outside of ourselves. The Old Testament testified to this very same truth, and it does so as Paul exemplifies in these, this long stanza of multiple Old Testament quotes because it shows us the true darkness of our hearts. We see at least three specific categories Paul mentions as he's quoting from these verses. He says, no one seeks God. And then he quotes, starting in verse 13, he quotes a few psalms that demonstrate the poison in our words. He says, their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive the venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Quoting here from Psalm 5-9 and Psalm 10-3 and 10 verse 7. The Psalms say, For there is no truth in their mouth. Their inmost self is destruction. Their throat is an open grave. They flatter with their tongue. For the wicked boasts of the desires of his soul, and the one greedy for gain curses and renounces the Lord. His mouth is filled with cursing and deceit and oppression. Under his tongue are mischief and iniquity. Our words are corrupted. That should be pretty self-evident. Just in our day-to-day Existence. I think it's only made clearer through the exacerbation, the, the opportunity that things like social media give. Our tongues are powerful. The James in his letter warns us that it's like the rudder for a ship. It can steer massive things and make a huge difference by the smallest action. It can burn an entire forest by just the small flame that it can spark. If we ask ourselves, just in this one category, are my words, words of holiness, of purity, of truth, of kindness, of peace, of joy, of grace, Our words are corrupted. They need a righteousness that can't come from within. Not only are our words corrupted, but our hands and feet, they shed blood. As Paul first speaks of our mouth, our words that we speak, and then he talks about our actions as their feet are swift to shed blood and their paths are ruin and misery and the way of peace they have not known. It's quoting from the prophet Isaiah who was speaking against a nation that had rebelled against God. So they were 
ruled by wicked kings who refused to see their sin. But not just the wicked kings, but the people themselves. Those who had any wealth or any power used it to oppress others, even their own brothers and sisters, their own family, their fellow Israelites in order to secure their own wealth. They refused to seek out true justice. They refused to obey God's law and they found themselves condemned. They were quick to run to evil. They, Isaiah says they, their feet run to evil. The same thing. They are swift to shed innocent blood. Their thoughts are thoughts of iniquity. Desolation and destruction are in their highways. The way of peace they do not know. There is no justice in their paths. They have made their roads crooked. No one who treads on them knows peace. Our actions testify against us. Our hands and feet have been quick to shed blood. We've been quick to secure our own situation through our own means, our own power, our own influence. We have failed to pursue the justice that God describes in His Word. It's our mind, the actions of our mind and our mouth testify against us, the actions of our hands and feet, they testify against us, and our hearts and mind are clearly against God. Just look at our pride. Look at our lack of fear. See, Paul ends this long line of quotes by quoting from Psalm 36. He says, from Psalm 36, it says, Transgression speaks to the wicked deep in his heart. There is no fear of God before his eyes. It's evident that our hearts and minds are against God and his righteousness because we do not fear God. We don't fear God because, and that's evident because we don't hate sin as we should. We don't fear God because our pride and our own self-righteousness is as evident as ever as we seek to condemn others while just like the audience that Paul is writing to, we seek to justify ourselves. And Paul, after quoting from the Old Testament to to silence his objectors. Paul then makes this statement. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For those listening who still said, well, we, we possess the law, he says, you don't understand. The written law given to you through Moses was meant to condemn you so that you didn't think that you were special because God chose you out of the wilderness as a people to be his own possession. Those who didn't have the law will still be judged, he said in, earlier in chapter 3 and chapter 2. They'll still be judged because their own law that they create them, themselves is a law and a testimony against them because they don't keep their own law. He says the law given to the Jews, given to the Jewish people, was meant to humble them and remind them of their need. 
So Paul says that it's meant to speak to those who are under the law so that every mouth, Jew and Gentile alike, may be stopped. Every mouth stopped. And here's where we should ask a question as we hear these tough but necessary words from Paul. Are our hearts silenced by the truth of God's word? Are our mouths stopped? When is the last time you were in complete silence? We fill our lives with so much noise. Whether we're filling it with trivial things that aren't necessarily bad whether we fill it with whatever our favorite news channel is so that we can hear words of justification and affirmation for our views with no criticism. We fill our lives with noise to drown out the loudness of the silence of our own case for self-justification. I have to think that Perhaps at the end of time when God returns after the trumpet sounds, but the entire creation, every one of us stands before the judgment seat of God, it will be a silent affair. I know our mouths won't speak. We all stand condemned because of our sin. No one seeks for God. By the works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight. Every mouth will be stopped. I think this is something that we in the Bible Belt are perhaps most guilty about. This, not unlike the Jewish people that Paul is confronting, the possession of the truth the possession of the word yet the failure of the word to abide in our hearts and there's 
something that has to be addressed that Paul is addressing here. And I think Flannery O'Connor puts it very well. She once stated that while the South is hardly Christ-centered, it most certainly is Christ-haunted. Think about what does that mean? I believe she's right because I think that we have many of the, the benefits of Bible permeation and that we know we need redemption. We know that there are things wrong, but here's the problem. If we don't get the full dose of the truth, we will undoubtedly, because of the corruption of our hearts, because of the sin that pervades us, we will try to bring in some type of confidence in ourselves. We will try to say, well, there's a little bit of good in us, and we will refuse and let it grow in our hearts, this idea that we don't need justification by Christ alone, but it's what we do plus what Christ does. See, our sinful tendency will always be towards self-justification and self-righteousness. And we see this in the Bible Belt, our friendliness, these facades that we put on. And I think that this veneer often only barely covers the brokenness that is underneath. The sin that needs to be addressed. And see, Paul's harshness towards the Jewish people as he's confronting them in their sin, confronting them in the brokenness that is in their hearts, that harshness is not meant to condemn without hope. And we need to hear it just as much as any because while we may be Christ-haunted, it's because we haven't yet seen the full depravity of ourselves and without that we don't see the glorious grace of Christ and His work on the cross. Paul wants us to know, just like he wants the Jewish people to know, just how bad we are so that we see the magnitude of our dilemma. Would a doctor be any good if he had a patient who he knew was terminally ill right before him, Yet he knew the doctor who was the doctor among doctors who had the skill, the knowledge, the ability, ability to heal them. But he told the patient, you know, you're not that bad off. You see, if we don't know how bad we are, then we won't see why it's so essential that we go to the one physician who can heal. We have to know how bad we are or we do not understand what the cure is and who it alone can come from. So what Paul is doing in this section is he's pleading with and confronting the, the Jewish unbelievers and believers alike to make them clearly understand Look, it's nothing 
that your hands can do. Nothing that you can do can justify you before a holy God. The Old Testament testifies to this truth. The reality around us testifies to this truth. We're in need of redemption. We need someone else to stand in for us. So what do we do? I think it'd be helpful to go back at this point to the psalm Paul referenced in last week's text in verse 4 when he quotes scripture he quotes from Psalm 51 and we see David again the man after God's own heart who was confronted with the darkness of his heart a man who knew the holiness of the God whom he served and we see David's response, which is a right response, a response of fear. Contrary to what we see, that there is no fear of God before the eyes of those who stand condemned. He says there is a a response of fear and silence and a testifying that my only hope is to cast myself on the mercy of God. He says in Verses 14 through 17. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation. And my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise. For you will not delight in sacrifice or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. You see, all of our attempts to escape the Christ-hauntedness by looking to find redemption in something, someone, anything, or anyone apart from Christ himself. It only leads us to further enslavement. But if we follow David's example, what Paul is pointing to, this this need to recognize, I stand condemned. David never says and makes an excuse. He stops making excuses for himself. And instead, he says, deliver me from my blood guiltiness. I am guilty, he's saying. God, you are the God of my salvation. Lord, it is only by your mercy that I can be saved. So David throws himself onto the mercy of God. David recognizes his sin. And he recognizes that what God wants is not works. He doesn't want us to try to prove ourselves because we cannot do that. But what he desires is a broken spirit, a contrite 
heart. God has to bring us down to our brokenness, make us see that we can do nothing to save ourselves, that no one apart from the grace of God comes to him, that we all stand condemned, and that we will never be justified in his sight by our own works, our own efforts. God desires for us to fall down before him, to fear him, to repent of our sin, and he promises life. Paul is harsh in his delivery of this truth. He lays it out there because there's only one hope for us. There's only one hope, that we would die to ourselves and trust in Christ alone. And what's so hard is that we have to realize just how enslaved we are to this idea of self-justification, self-preservation, because we will do everything we can to try to justify ourselves, to, to sneak in a little bit more of our own righteousness. But our righteousness, as the Word of God says, is as filthy rags before God. All our attempts come up short. So, where do we stand? Are our Mouths stopped before the holy God. I love what David, he confesses this. His, uh, he may be speaking, I think you could say his mouth is stopped and that he has stopped trying to justify himself. But then what does he say in verse 15? He says, O oh Lord, Open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise. Let us shut our mouths and stop seeking to justify ourselves before God by our own works. Let us plead to the Lord, open my lips so that I might sing your praises. Let's realize the enslavement of self-righteousness, of self-justification. There's a wonderful uh, book I read this past summer called The Unsaved Christian. and uh, The author, Pastor Dean and Sarah, said this is, this is one of the few things that we struggle to understand apart from realizing the truth of the gospel is that faith practiced apart from repentance is one that actually won't experience freedom. Faith that isn't coupled with repentance isn't true faith. Faith coupled with repentance is the only 
way that we find freedom because we repent of our self-righteousness. We repent of our sin. And we put our hope in Christ and Christ alone. Now we're going to get to that glorious good news next week of just how Christ accomplishes righteousness for us. But I want to leave you in the midst of all this darkness. Paul ends with this dark statement. No one, by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight. And in verse 21, one of the greatest words in all of Scripture, but, it says, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. That righteousness is manifested in Jesus Christ who died in our stead. My prayer is that you realize, die to yourself this week. Find your hope in Christ and Christ alone. He is our only hope to be righteous. And he freely gives of his righteousness when we repent of our lack thereof. May we see his righteousness greater. And may we all find freedom through repentance. Let's pray.